Well, we are at week number 12 of 13 for this class in Life and the Body. And uh, following this class, we'll move into a study of uh, spiritual disciplines. And uh, so we're kind of wrapping it up here. We want to look at corporate worship this week and then evangelism next week. Would you turn to John chapter 4? We want to begin with the question, what is worship? What does it mean to worship God? Is it all about, you know, musical instruments and stained glass or losing ourselves in the moment, having a worship experience? Jesus here in John chapter 4 meets the Samaritan woman at the well and she invites him into a debate. She says, should believers worship in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim? And... uh, In responding, Jesus says this in verse 24. Uh, Well, I should start up in verse uh, 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus says something quite remarkable remarkable here. He says that God is looking for worshipers, in verse 23, who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. She's thinking about a specific location. We need to go to a specific place. So you Jews, you say it's in Jerusalem. We Samaritans, we, we argue that it should be in Mount Gerizim. And Jesus is saying, you know what? There's coming a day when it's not going to be about a place. You know, it's not going to be confined to one place like it has been historically in the tabernacle or in the temple. And it's not even confined to a church building in, in our day. It's, it's to be done in spirit and it's to be done in truth. That is, not limited to one physical location where we all have to go to some sort of uh, Christian Mecca to be able to worship God. But but rather, we can worship God wherever we are. And then in truth means that, that we are serving the Savior of truth, the, the true vine, the true manna, the true shepherd, the true temple, the true Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, to be a Christian is to be a worshiper. At the very heart of who we are as Christians is to worship God. In fact, Revelation 14 sums up the message that God has for the human race. It says, fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Worship is central to life as a Christian. It's central to life in the body. And so, that is why at our church, we could say that our goal is that every part of what we do, from our teaching here in this hour... Uh, to the morning and evening services, to the Wednesday evening service, to the budget, to you know the upkeep of the building. All of this is to create and equip worshipers for the glory of God. Everything that we do, we, we're, we're working to 
create worshipers for the glory of God. Now, that means that those of us who are worshiping God now, we want to create better worshipers. We want to get better at what we're doing, right? And those who are not worshiping God, unbelievers or maybe people who haven't uh, committed to Christ and following Him by joining a church, we want to see them become better worship worshipers of God as well. So what's the goal this morning? Um, there's lots that we could say about worship. There are just scores of books that are written about the topic of worship. And so there's a lot of places that we could go. But uh, I hope you, you, what you have been noticing is that this class is primarily going to be about worship within the body. That it's about corporate worship primarily. We will talk about other aspects of individual worship, and I think that is important to our understanding of, of our responsibility in life. But primarily, we're going to focus on corporate worship. In many ways, God-glorifying worship is one of the sweetest and most valuable fruits of unity that we've been discussing throughout these 12 weeks. And yet, um, this worship also creates unity. So it's kind of like a cyclical relationship or reciprocal relationship where when we are unified around the proper, um, a proper goal, that is, seeing Christ exalted, then we, then we have true worship. And when we have true worship, it actually creates better unity. And so it's a reciprocal type of relationship. When we are amazed at the beauty of Christ and focus our minds and our hearts on Him, then we are filled with a desire to love uh, Him and to love those around us. So it contributes to our unity. But as you know, um, worship can be, the topic of worship can be a cause for great disunity, can't it? There are lots of disagreements over musical styles uh, or, you know, things that go on within a given service that don't really give us the full worship experience, maybe something that's missing or something that's added that I don't see how it connects. And so there's all sorts of questions that may come up in our minds. What is corporate worship? What is it that makes corporate worship different than a coordinated um, quiet time of, of 30 to 50 individuals? You know, what if I just got up and said, okay, we're all going to have our quiet time. We would do this in college. Uh, I went to Northland for a semester, and they would have just, okay, this is our time. We're going to have some quiet time. Uh, perhaps you've been to camp, and they have the God and I time. So they do at Camp, Camp Kobiak. So it's just this is coordinated individual worship. So what if I just got up for a service and said, "All right, let's everybody let's worship God. Uh, take some time right now and and start doing your devotions." You know what what makes what we do during a Sunday morning and Sunday evening service different from that? What's so special about meeting together with? people to worship God. So for the rest of our class, we're going to consider questions like these. And our, our focus is not going to be uh, specifically on individual worship, but on corporate worship. All right, so let me begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll look at a definition of worship together. Father, help us to understand properly what your word teaches us about 
how you desire to be worshipped. We're thankful that you've given us instruction as to what we are supposed to do so that we're not left guessing. Give us the understanding that we need and help us to accept what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the definition of worship. Again, you can find as many definitions as you find authors of books on worship. And so um, so it's not really easy to nail it down. The word that, that we have in our Bible that's translated worship, that's used most often, is a word that, that um, points us to the idea that we need to, to provide God with great worth or give God the worth, acknowledge the worth that He already has. Uh, worship encapsulates all of life, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so our lives are supposed to be about worship. In, in uh, Romans chapter 12, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual act of what? Of worship. This is the way that we worship God. We just give our lives completely to Him. And um, so, how might we define worship? Uh, Dr. Carson here has a definition that I put for you on the handout. I'm not going to read through it. Uh, It's a longer definition but uh, some good good thoughts in there, and we're going to talk about some of those as we go through. A less detailed, a little bit more concise definition of worship comes from uh, author Tim Keller, pastor of a church in New York. He says, Obedient action, worship is obedient action motivated by the beauty of who God is in Himself. Okay, so that it, it actually should move us to affections, but... It should move us to some sort of emotion, but that should not be what it's all about. It's actually about who God is. It's not about primarily our emotions. Um, Worship is about God. It's God-centered. It's proper response to the magnificence and the splendor and the majesty of God's character. It's what you think about when you read through Isaiah 6, when Isaiah comes before the throne of God and is just standing in awe of God and His purity, His holiness. This is how we should, this is what kind of sense we should get when we come before God. A God who is worthy of our praise. Worship of God is more than intellectual um, understanding of what God is like, it actually is delighting in Him. You see that in the definition? Obedient action motivated by the beauty of who God is in Himself. So we actually come to understand something about God, and it doesn't just hit us in the head, like Dr. Towns was talking about on Wednesday night, but it actually changes us. It, it affects our hearts. It changes us. It it Um, causes us to do something, to delight in Him, to take pleasure in His characteristics and and to give Him praise accordingly. So, worship is about God and it's Christ-centered. It's 
Christ-centered. Let me... about God and it's Christ-centered. We we know that for all of eternity we will be praising Christ because He is the Lamb that was slain. Uh, you get this picture in Re- Revelation chapter 5, I think it is, where the angels are, are weeping and John is weeping because no one can open the scrolls to read what's in them. And um, And then there was one who was found worthy to open the scrolls or the books to find out what was in the seals, to to reveal what was in the seals. And it was Christ because He was the He, he was made the God Man. He was uh, He became human for us, and He He died in our place. Even God the Father Himself could not open those scrolls. Only one who who had died and who was now living could do so. And we know that for all of eternity, one of the things that we will be praising God for is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. In fact, from the time that He opens those seals to the end of the book of the Revelation, the the praise goes to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. He who sits on the throne, and uh, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So, worship is... God-centered, but it's also Christ-centered. I guess more specifically, it is Christ-centered. God is exalting His Son, and will do so for all, throughout all of eternity. So, what is a biblical understanding of worship? This comes from Dr. Carson's book, Worship by the Book. Number one, it's a proper response to God Himself. Okay, so it's, again, recognizing who God is. It's causing us to think properly about who God is and then responding in worship. Read through the Psalms and find out what kind of things they're going through. And when they, when they consider, like for example, Psalm 8, when I consider the works of your hands, the sun, moon, and stars, the heavens, what is man that you are mindful of him? And it goes on to say, O Lord, how, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we consider who God is, and what he has done, what he is doing, it naturally will respond, will result for us as Christians in a right reaction, which is to worship him. So it's a proper response to God himself. Number two, it encompasses our t- entire lives. It's not simply, you know, singing praise to God, but it involves both adoring him and moving to action. That is changing the way that we live, living according to his desires. It's not just about saying things, right? We we don't just go around saying good things about God or giving praise to God with just our lips, but we give our whole lives. That's what Romans 12 is talking about. We offer our bodies, our whole lives, as living sacrifices unto God, which is the spiritual, reasonable service of worship. Number three is to delight in God and the beauty of Christ, not in the experience of our wor- of our worship of my individual worship Carson argues that in our culture worship too often refers to the emotions that I myself experience as I close my eyes and sing about my God 
And sometimes we get so caught up in my personal experience, your personal experience, that we forget that worship is not about our experience. It's about God. And so, you know, worship can become a competition. You know, we look at some of these other churches and say, wow, they really know how to worship. You know, they worship better than we do. Uh, we we miss some things. Or we worship better than they do. They don't do the things, you know, the, uh, they, they don't do the things that we do. Or, you know, we we kind of sing these old hymns and how, how worshipful is that? And so it's all about my experience. It's all about... It's all about me, but it's not about God. And that's not what worship is. Worship focuses our hearts and minds on God and Christ. And we we continue to focus on Him. Like, for example, in, in the various aspects of our worship that we're going to participate in this morning. Like praying to God. And singing to Him. And giving to Him. And listening to Him speak through His Word, and reflecting on the death of His Son through the Lord's Supper. Every part of our worship is reminding us that it's about God. It's not about us. And um, so it starts with a proper thinking of Him, and it moves to proper action um, in our lives. So what that means is that that we ought to be about worship in more than just the times that we gather together. I hope you understand that, that we don't just come and, you know, we're going to worship God today, and then the rest of the week it's my time. That sounds kind of silly just even saying it that way, but, but in reality that tends to be the way we live sometimes. We compartmentalize our lives to the to the point where, Okay, this is God's time, and the rest is my time. But ultimately, all of it is God's. God owns us. He, he, uh, we belong to Him. We are His bond servants. And so, He can determine what we do with our lives, not us. So, so that means we give all of our lives to Him in worship. But, but that's... So what we've looked at so far is is really that aspect, our individual lives as worship. Now, what about corporate worship? What about corporate worship? The time when we gather together as a congregation publicly for the purpose of praising God. Um, again, trying to find a definition can be a little bit difficult, but I've put one for you there um, on your handout. It's a set of prescribed activities from Scripture that we engage in to praise God together when we gather publicly as a church. So, if we want to know what corporate worship is, coming together in worship, if we want to know what that is, well, thankfully we don't have to guess. God has given us guidance in the Scriptures as to what the purpose of our worship should be and what the elements of our worship should be. So in the New Testament, we see congregations gathering to pray and to sing. And we see commands for the church to publicly read Scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13, to listen to preaching and teaching, to share the Lord's Supper, to encourage each other and praise God in song. 
And in addition to these, we see members praying together and encouraging one another and publicly confessing their faith when they when they assemble. So we don't have to guess, do we, about what kind of things do we need in our worship services, in our corporate worship, what should we include? Well, the Bible has given us what we should include. But what about other things? You know, maybe someone has the idea, let's just go on a nature hike in the in the mountains. You know, we'll take a trip, find some mountains, or if we're staying in Michigan, some hills. And this might be a great way for us to excite our hearts to praise God. You know, what if we what if every other week we decided to go hiking on Sunday morning? And but we did it together. There's all of us together doing this, just not in this building. Well, we would be assembling together, and that's part of what makes corporate worship service. That's part of what makes uh, a church a church's corporate worship service. Um but would we be worshiping God as He desires? See, as we're going to find out shortly, corporate worship is not simply doing worshipful things, like going on a hike and seeing the nature. It involves doing things specifically prescribed by God when we come together. So if on that nature hike we we did what we were supposed to do based on what the New Testament talks about, then that could actually uh, be corporate worship. But if we're just going on a nature hike just to um, just to kind of um, uh, jar our desire or, or in, inflame our desires or I can't think of the, the term I'm looking for, but yeah, maybe to inspire us. Well, that's not really corporate worship. That may be one type of, of worship of our lives, but that's not corporate worship. So as we read through our Bible, there's several things that become quite clear about our relationship with God. First, we discover that there's a great difference between us and God, that it's not ultimately about us, that He is infinite, He is all-sufficient, He doesn't need us, we need Him. We are finite. We are limited in our knowledge. And as a result, we cannot understand the details of His character without Him telling us. We can't know God without Him revealing Himself to us. And we can't understand what worship will be pleasing to Him unless He tells us. And so this means that we are incapable of going out there and just discovering what might be pleasing to God. And that is apart from the Scriptures. Okay, let's just put a committee together and let's figure it out. What is it that would really please God in worship? We can't figure that out apart from His Word. He has to tell us what it is that pleases us, pleases Him. And so when we come to the very early pages of Scripture, the very first page of the Scripture, we start to see some worship take form. And we see that God is the one who has to tell His people what He desires in worship. So Cain offers fruit 
of the soil to God, but Abel offers fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. And so we read in Genesis 4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. There in Genesis 4, God reminds Cain that he already prescribed what he wanted in worship. And Cain, you didn't do what I asked you to do. Later in the second command, Exodus 20, God prohibits worship through images. So maybe we could start to come together in our little committee and say, well, maybe God wants to be worshipped through a specific form, through a material product that we make, maybe wood or metal or or something. But we know because God has told us that He doesn't want to be worshipped that way. In fact, He demands that we don't worship Him that way. Aaron tried it and it didn't work. When Nadab and Abihu offered up unauthorized fire contrary to His command in Leviticus 10, what did God do to them? He struck them dead, didn't He? See, God tells us what He wants in worship. Jesus later in in Matthew uh, in Mark chapter seven, someone read Mark seven seven for us. There He's talking about the worship of the Pharisees, and He's quoting from Isaiah Mark seven seven. When you find it, just go ahead and read that for us. All right, so in vain they worship me. Well, we could ask, why is it in vain? What makes their worship vanity, empty, useless? What is it? Yeah, it's not how God prescribed it. It's what they thought would be helpful, what they thought God would want. You see, so worship must be done according to explicit instruction of God. So, we say, I say all this to say that we have to understand that the Bible does not leave us to improvise. Just leave it wide open, okay? You find your, your little corporate expression of worship and do it. It doesn't leave us free to improvise. It tells us it regulates the elements of our worship. What kind of things ought to be included in our service of worship, specifically the time which we meet to to worship God. And that's what those things are listed for you on the second page. You know, things like prayer and reading God's word and preaching and and the Lord's Supper and encouragement and singing. Baptism, you know, we could add, we could add that. Obviously, that's a part of, of worship, and it, and it's, this worship ought to be infused with scripture. It ought to be in spirit and in truth. It ought to be truth-based worship. Now, so what we need to understand is that the elements cannot be changed. We can't add and take away elements that we don't maybe find helpful. We need to include all the elements that the Scripture uh, prescribes. However, the way that we do those elements, the way that we practice those elements, the form of those elements is going to be different based on 
where we are in the world and what time period we're in. So, in some churches historically and even today, there are churches that that do the singing portion of their worship without any instruments. Now, does the Scripture prescribe that we have to have instruments when we sing? Would they be sinful to sing a cappella? No. Okay. Other, you know, other churches sing with a guitar and from an overhead. Does the Scripture prescribe that we need to sing from a hymn book? Did Paul have a hymn book? Okay, so, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't condemn those churches. That's what we need to understand. The key is the elements of the worship. Are they singing to God with truth? Are they preaching the Word of God? Okay, whether it's topical or expositional, are they preaching the Word of God? Are they observing the Lord's Supper? Are they, are they praying together? Okay, whether it's one person leading out in prayer or having small groups of people praying, you see how the form is not as important as the elements themselves. What the Scripture prescribes are the elements. We can't change them or remove them, add other ones to them. Corporate worship is public worship. It's a time for the entire church to gather together and when even outsiders are invited to watch. But ultimately, corporate worship displays God to us and to the watching world. So we're going to draw two implications from our understanding of corporate worship and... um, and then we'll look at some unique elements of corporate worship. Any questions so far or comments? Great. Um, yeah, I mean, faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I think I might have mixed up two of those words there, but substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So, um, genuine genuine faith is believing in what we cannot see. That is, God and His truth, His promises. Um, I mean, God will not allow material objects to represent him. He can't be some of the other gods might be able to be represented that way in a small object or a big object like Nebuchadnezzar's statue, but but God can't be. He can't confi- be confined to one you know, material image. Um so yeah, it's Oh, yeah. Yeah, anything that takes the rightful place of God as the supreme being in our lives can be an idol for us, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think even Christians struggle with moving God off the throne, off off the place of preeminence, of first place, moving Him to a lower position. Usually we don't just deny Him completely. 
as Christians. Instead, we put something else as more important, even some good things like our family. You know, like my family's important, so I'm going to make sure they're cared for more than my relationship with God. And yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, we definitely could make God angry. Um, Judges, we're going to talk about that tonight when we look at Judges 3. Um, God's jealousy for His people. How would I determine uh, whether it's an idol? Um, I think that's a tough one, but I mean, I, I, I think about that myself because there's some things that that I value highly and sometimes they do take first place over God and, and I have to watch myself. So um, I, it's a tough one, but but it's about where we spend our time, where we spend our money, what kind of thoughts we have. I mean, what's what's my first thought in the morning? I mean, that's, doesn't, that's not definitive. Um, okay, this is an idol. If my first thought was, I, my body is aching right now, <laughs> um, but um, but if every morning you know we wake up and all we're thinking about is whatever the weather or what I'm going to eat today or um, you know what the score of the Tigers game was last night, see it's come real close to home now. Um, then then we have to guard ourselves because we could actually be dethroning God or moving Him to a lesser place in our lives. It's just a constant um, struggle and and um, reflection that, that's required on our parts to just say, I think the, if, we're, if we're thinking about it personally for ourselves, probably the best thing to do is just talk to God about it. God, where are you in my life? I mean, wh- what place do you have? Am I... Am I creating rivals to you that you don't deserve because of how I spend my time and how I spend my money, how I spend my thoughts? Difficult difficult question to answer, but the heart is deceitfully wicked and it's very complex. We have competing motives. Even when we come to church... Even if we do spend our time, a lot of time with God, we can still have competing motives where, oh, maybe I'm coming to worship God, but my main motive is to have other people see me worshiping God. So we, we can we can even deceive ourselves in that way. And that's why we need God to reveal to us where our motives are, which only comes through His Word. The very next verse after Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitfully wicked, is, I think at the end it says, who can know the heart or something like that. And then verse 10 is, the Lord searches the heart. So it's the Lord who knows our hearts. And so we need to go to the Lord to find out where we are specifically. Now if your question is, how can we know if other people are are living in idolatry? It's a lot harder to tell except for Again, same sorts of things. How do they use their time? They never darken the door of the church that they're supposed they're supposed to be committed to. 
then where is their commitment? What what are they committing their time and, and their energies to? All right, well, let me get to these implications and, and the, the unique elements of worship. Uh, we've got a few more minutes here. We need to understand that corporate worship is not just about singing. Some people think that the worship experience is about our singing. Okay, so now I've worshipped. We'll get done with the, the singing part of the service. Now I've worshipped. Now let's hear the preaching. We can go home. So keep the preaching really short because we've already worshipped with our singing. That's what they mean when they say that. And then the, the, you know, the talk at the end, the little speech that, that's given, that's nice. But actually both of those are, are necessary. Other people are the other way. They think the most important part is the, or, or I should say the exclusive part of worship is the preaching. And then the songs, they don't really matter. Whether or not we sing, it doesn't matter to me. As long as we're opening up the scriptures. And I think the preaching aspect of our corporate worship is the most important. It's the main meal of our service. It's the most important part of why we gather. It's to hear God speak. But we can't worship God according to His prescribed measures without singing. Right? Singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing in melody, making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's an act of worship that God demands. So both of those are necessary. And worship is not either intellectual or emotional. That is, okay, so we want to get away from that worship experience idea. You know, some of these little rah-rah worship sessions that go on. We want to get away from that. So let's just make it solely intellectual. And then we'll divorce our emotions from from our, our minds, our thoughts about God. But no, worship ought to be both ought to be both both intellectual and emotional. It ought to affect our emotions. Like again with Isaiah. And he was moved to um, emotion because of seeing God. Um, so it's both intellectual and emotional, not one or the other. Second implication is is maintaining corporate worship in the face of diversity of preferences. So, for example, Paul says in Philippians 2, be, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And so we need to think about where ought we to be one in purpose with one another? What kind of things is Paul talking about there? He's talking about every single way, that we, every single form of our worship. So everyone has to agree on exactly what kind of hymns are sung or the way that uh, are sung or the way that they're sung um, I think we ought to be united about the main elements of our worship but as far as how they're carried out we have to be careful uh about that remember worship is not about us Philippians 2 says in the next couple of verses verses 3 and 4 do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility, consider others as better than yourself. So when you come to worship and there's a certain element of our worship that maybe the singing or the way that the preaching takes place, it doesn't really strike a chord with you. Maybe you'd like to do it a different way. And think about the other people, that is the whole. How, how can I be unified 
with these people uh, by by uh, participating in this worship without um, causing unnecessary division. Okay, obviously there are times for necessary division, but but how can we can we work together to please God through our unity? See, worship happens through unity, and worship fosters unity, and and unity cannot have selfishness. It it is devoid of selfishness. We have to worship God with a sense of our need for Him, rather a sense of our uh, a need for our fullness. So I hope that when I come to church today, that I leave feeling full, feeling really good about what happened today. But if that's our goal when we come to worship, then we've missed the point. Here's John Piper um, making this point in a clearer way than I can. He says, The basic attitude of worship on Sunday morning is not to come with your hands full to give to God, but with your hands empty to receive from God. And what you receive in worship is not entertainment. You ought to come hungry for God. God is mightily honored when people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. Worship is about our need for God. We need to to recognize that need. And so that should make us uh, selfless when we come to worship, that, that we are in desperate need of God and that we can only be satisfied by Him. Um, all right, let me skip to the unique elements of corporate worship because we need to... Uh, there's there's some... There's some... Uh, Ideas for you there on the bottom of page page three of as to how we can do that, but let me skip to the unique elements of corporate worship. Four aspects of corporate worship that make it unique relative to other opportunities that we have to praise God. So remember, I said all of life is about worship. So what is it? So what what makes corporate worship so unique, so special? Number one, corporate worship displays. Oh wow. Glad you have a handout, right? All right. Displays God-glorifying unity. It's great when we can sit at our own home in the morning and praise God for some facet of His character, for something that we read in the Scripture, and we ought to be doing that. But isn't there something special about gathering together publicly with other people who love God? And praising God in a unified voice with a unified heart? Isn't there something special about that? In that sense, worship is a celebration of God-given God unity. And that's why Jesus is so insistent about being unified with your brother. Remember Matthew chapter 5? If you're offering a gift at the altar, if you're in the act of worshiping God and then remember that your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave it and do what? Go and be reconciled to your brother. Now, this is interesting because Jesus didn't say, when you have sinned against your brother, you go and seek forgiveness from that person. No, He says, when they have sinned against you, when when you recognize that there has been a wrong done against you, and you realize that at the point of your worship, Stop worshiping 
and go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and worship. Because worship must be done in unity. It is vitally important that we have been reconciled. Paul talks about this with regard to the Lord's Supper. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord's, uh, the body of the Lord, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. And there, I think Paul's talking about just this disunity that's going on. People were very selfish when they were coming to the Lord's table, not considering the rest of the people. Some of them coming drunk, and. So even in our preparation of worship and preparation of the Lord's Supper, we ought to examine our relationships with each other as well as our relationship with God. Number two, we help each other to worship. This doesn't happen in your own personal quiet time. This happens when we come together. We help each other to worship. We help each other by singing to one another. Did you ever notice that? And in Ephesians chapter 5, this kind of spills over to the next point, but in Ephesians chapter 5, it is sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord, right? That's the last part of the verse. But the first part says, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So it's not my little individual cocoon worship of God where I'm just kind of in my own little world and I'm worshiping God individually just happens to be in public place, but I'm worshiping God individually. No, it's I'm actually singing to God from my heart, and I'm singing to you. Each one of you, I'm singing to you to encourage you. And I hope that you've had that happen to you, where you have been encouraged just from you know, hearing more of God's people sing the same truth that you're singing. Um. So we can help each other in our worship. And then corporate worship is edifying. We can edify each other in our worship. That's what the Ephesians 5 there I was just talking about. Sing to one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Corporate worship is edifying. Not just the singing part, but just seeing other people. Just your attendance is actually encouraging to me. And I think it's encouraging to other people here at the church. Just the fact that you come and find it important to hear God speak and to meet with other believers. That's encouraging. It's encouraging to me, and I'm sure it's encouraging to other people. So so corporate worship is edifying. And then number four, we ought to get used to it get get used to worshiping together with other people because corporate worship is a taste of heaven. Did you ever notice that the worship of God started out in a in a uh, rural setting in the garden with just two people. But in the end, it's going to be in an urban setting, isn't it? The New Jerusalem, the great city full of people. And throughout the Bible, you can kind of see it start to to progress that way. Less about individuals, more about communities. And you know what that does? That actually speaks to God's glory that people from all kinds of different nationalities, all kinds of different backgrounds, will come together and praise the Lamb. All for the same reason. Even though they would have nothing in common with you and me, other than their 
their uh, acceptance of Christ's love for them. And that's what heaven will be about. It will be about us worshiping together with other believers for forever. All right, any quick questions or thoughts? Mark? Contribution. Financial or otherwise? Verbal. Okay, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about God fulfilling uh, us in our worship. And, And ultimately, God is going to be praised through our worship when we do it according to His prescribed method. So what is it that you want? And so this is a good question just to remind, to, to continually ask ourselves. What is it that God desires of our church's worship? What kind of things? And as you're reading through the Scriptures, just try to reflect on that question and think about how God answers that in His Word. And maybe there are some things in our worship services that need to be refined, and that would not be a bad thing. We, we need to make sure that our worship is acceptable to God. But, but I think with the elements that we have in our worship, I think God is pleased, not because I just got some sense, but because this is what His Word tells us we ought to be doing. And uh, I, I think we're doing those things. So we need to continue to do it, obviously from our hearts, uh, because it's not enough just to go through the ritual, so to speak. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace, even this hour, to follow. You deserve to be worshipped with all of our hearts and with our entire body of believers. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.